Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Good evening, good evening. How are we this fine afternoon? Who wasn't here this morning? Right. Well, you have the privilege of being inside this morning. Because, oh, this evening, sorry. Because this morning, five minutes before the service about to start, tunk, all the lights went out. So we had church outside. And um, yeah, Dave was preaching in between the trucks driving past. It was interesting. I had that, that vision or that picture of Monty Python. Have you seen that? Where, like, it's the opening, one of the opening scenes where Jesus is a like preaching the Sermon on the Mount and he's like, blessed are the peacemakers and they go right down at the back and it's like, what did he say? I can't hear a thing. And it's like, blessed are the cheesemakers and he's like, don't take it literally. I'm sure he means all dairy manufacturers. And, so, and then there was a whole shut up big nose thing going on. It was great. Anyway, watch it. It's good. I remember when the 80s when it came out, we were told that it was of the devil so we weren't allowed to watch it. And so hence I, my dad loved it. It was great. So, excuse me. I would have had a nice table here, but Vicky just broke it. <laughs> so, that was on, that's on camera, just saying. <laughs> cool. So, we're in Ephesians again this evening. And I'm going to start off by asking, who here thought that when you became a Christian, all of your problems and all your struggles would have gone away. Yeah? Yeah. So, one of, the, one of the things that we tend to think about Christianity is that, well, I struggle in this area, or I struggle in that area, and I have faith in God. I believe I read my Bible. I'm a good Christian. So therefore, quite frankly, all of my struggles and my problems should go away. Isn't that the deal that we got involved in? See, that's my part. I pray. I believe. Now God needs to get on with doing his part and sort it all out. Because quite frankly, if I have struggles and problems, then clearly he's not living up to his end of the deal. Like, that's what Christianity is, isn't it? That's what, how people sell it, that you become a Christian and all of a sudden your life's all roses. God better bless me, shower me with health and wealth, give me heaven take away all of my problems because that's what the Bible says. That's also a whole bunch of prosperity gospel nonsense that we are thankfully, hopefully on the other side of. But I hear you say, Brett, isn't that what Jeremiah 29.11 says? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And doesn't Romans 8.28 say, 
something sort of similar. Unfortunately, those two passages are probably the most misquoted and misrepresented passages in the entire Bible for the eternity or, well, for the history of Christianity. So, but that's what people read and they go, well, that's God's promise to me. My life sucks and God's going to fix it and prosper me. Unfortunately for us, the individual, the context of the passage in Jeremiah is about he's speaking to a people who are in exile and they quite frankly don't want to be there and they've gone, this isn't very nice, thank you very much. God, you need to save us from this. They want an immediate rescue. God responds through the prophet that he did in fact have a plan and that plan was good. But it wasn't going to happen today and it wasn't even going to happen tomorrow. And for the Israelites, in fact, it wasn't even going to happen for that generation. The book or the letter that Paul writes to the Ephesians, he's in a state of constantly trying to wake them up, constantly trying to get them to understand what God has done for them. And considering the work that he's done for them, who they now are. It's not about our blessing and our prosperity. In fact, it's not about us individuals at all. You were dead and now you're alive. You were cast out and now you are a vital member of a family. You are loved and you are accepted. And now that you are a member of this family, Paul begins to outline what it means to live there as this family member. He outlines the importance of maintaining unity, that the Christian community is essential for growth to maturity, for each of us to help fellow believers grow in the knowledge of Christ and the love for one another. We're called to live our daily lives in a way that is sharply different from the rest of society, from the world around us, because we were darkened, we were excluded, and we were hardened. But we must take off our old self, we must be renewed in the spirit, and we need to put on our new self. We are to rid ourselves of our vices, And we are to cultivate virtues that build up the community around us. And these virtues are defined as walking in love. We are in the light. So therefore we should walk as if we are in the light. How does that sit? That's pretty much the summary of Ephesians up till now.
We're in Ephesians 5, starting at verse 15. Pay careful attention then to how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, from 15 to verse 17, let me read that again. Pay careful, pay careful attention then to how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Now, Paul makes two assumptions going in. He makes the assumption that Christians are wise and not fools, and that Christian wisdom is practical wisdom, that it teaches us how to behave and how to live properly in the world. So he makes those two assumptions going into this. As Christians, we must no longer live according to the world, the flesh or the devil. We must no longer live like the pagans. Instead, we must live lives that are worthy to the calling of God. We must live in love and as children of light. Now, Paul's exhortation here... outlines how we are to live as the wise people that he credits us as being. But he tells us to pay careful attention. Who can I pick on? Do you pay careful attention to how you dress in the mornings? It's a yes, no, really quick. Cool. Do you pay attention to how your house looks? Yes? No, I know, that's why I asked you. How about a parent? Mr. Fricker. No. <laughs> Do you pay te- careful attention to your family? Try. Try. We pay careful attention to all these things. Our houses, our homes, our families, how we look, our hobbies, our job, our appearance, the whole gambit. What Paul is calling us to do here is that we must take care of our Christian life also. It is not something that happens passively in the background while we are busy doing other things. This is the thing that we must take care of. So what does it mean to be wise? Because it's assumed that we are. There's a difference between being wise and smart, though. I've seen a whole bunch of wise people who are as dumb as a post. In practical worldly things. <laughs> I should clarify. Sorry, I forget that I'm on camera. Okay. <laughs> so Paul has already told us where Christian wisdom comes from. He tells us that in Ephesians 1 verse 17. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom 
and the revelation in the knowledge of him. So wisdom comes from the Father via the Spirit. And he has distinguished the difference in a whole bunch of his letters, the difference between what culturally defined wisdom is and what biblical wisdom is. A good overview of that can be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, since it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the reasonings of the wise are futile. Paul tells us that the marks of people who are biblically wise, that they make the most of their time, and secondly, discern the will of God. So what does making the most of our time mean? Jonathan Edwards was a revivalist preacher in the 1800s. He lived about 1730s. And he wrote a series of 70 resolutions, 70 things that he resolved to do in his walk as a Christian. The fifth resolution that he wrote when he was 19, 19, I'm 40, this dude is way smarter and wiser than me. He wrote this, resolved, never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. That's a guy whose eyes are wide open. How old are you? 16. You've got three years, mate. (laughs) (laughs) So Paul urges us to make the most of the time that we have. I would say go and listen to Dave's podcast this morning because he spoke all about time, but you can't. So you were either here or you weren't. (laughs) Sorry. As one commentator paraphrases this this verse, the moments for sowing on receptive soil in such evil days being few, seize them when they offer themselves. I'll say that again. The moments for sowing on receptive soil in such evil days being few, seize them when they offer themselves. We're not called to sit passively in our little Christian huddle and wait for Jesus to come back in a safe little environment. We are called to fill the world with the good news of redemption. What about discerning the will of God? Who thinks they got that down? Hands up. <laughs> Who knows how to discern the will of God? No? Sort of? Yeah? No? Okay. So that's the second characteristic. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. So it's assumed that it can be done. Now, we need to understand that wisdom is to be found in God and nowhere else. And this should be our life quest. Nothing is more important in life than to discover and do the will of God. 
If you don't know what the will of God is, I suggest you start looking for it. There are two types of will, of of God's will. There's general and specific. Now, the general will of God can be found in Scripture and it relates to all of us. Knowing the general will of God means knowing the height, the depth, the width, the length of the mystery of God as revealed in Christ. Okay, and I'll give you a hint. The will of God is to gather up all things in Christ. You find it in here. If you don't read this, you won't know. Hint. The second is specific will. Now this relates specifically to you. And you won't find it in this. Because we're all individual, so it's different for all of us. Now we can find general principles in here. I mean, if you're under the impression that going out and killing everybody is the will of God for your life, I would suggest you might need to start on the general stuff first. Just saying. Okay? So, it can be found through careful prayer and thought and seeking advice from mature believers. So yet again, specific will of God is found in the context of community as well. Verse 18. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. Who's been told this passage when they say, your bodies are a temple, so don't drink wine because it says so in Ephesians 5.18. No drinking, bad. <laughs> Sorry. Does it, so is this passage a condemnation of all drinking? No. No, it's not. It does, however, raise some interesting contrasts on a couple of different levels. The first contrast is obviously the physicality of drinking between being drunk and being spirit-filled. As we know, alcohol affects the high function centres of our brain um, that are responsible for self-control, decision-making, understanding, judgement, balance, discernment. So pretty much all the things that make us behave at our best. And being under the influence of this leads to reckless living or a more specific interpretation of that is debauchery. It's a good old word I think they need to bring back. (laughs) Debauchery. People who are drunk give way to wild, debauched and uncontrolled actions and it dehumanises us. Now, I remember I grew up in old school Anglicanism and I used to be an uh, older boy, or the equivalent of. And so part of being an older boy was that you helped the priest when he was doing Eucharist. Now, the, um, the way the st- service was structured in the Anglican church is that it's not actually about 
the pastor getting up and preaching. It's actually all about the Eucharist and everything builds towards that moment. The, the focus is, is, is different to us. It doesn't make it bad or, or good, it just makes it wrong, uh, different. And so part of my role was to help him do, like, set up for that. Now, it was all sort of guesstimation about how many people were in the room. There looks like there's this many, so I'll give about this much into the, into the chalice, how much bread. Now, the way that the Anglicans operate is that because it's blessed, so therefore it's holy. If we don't use those little cups, they go back in the bucket and they go back into my office and I'll bring them down next month. But in the Anglican church, especially when I was a kid and I was an altar boy, and when I say that I was like early teens, that you couldn't throw this stuff away because it was holy. It had to be consumed. (laughs) And so sometimes if the priest was a little heavy-handed or overestimated how many people were in the room, because they used port, like fortified wine. And so we would sit there after the service in like the little vestibule, whatever it's called, where he puts all these gowns and stuff, and we would consume the bread and the wine because it was holy. Now, I remember, I used to do it almost every week, so I remember a few times that it was like he was pretty loose with his wrists sometimes, but it was just like... You'd walk out of there stumbling and like you're new. I was always early teens. And so, but I, but I remember, I don't know why I saw this, but I remember that we used to get feedback that you shouldn't use wine, you shouldn't use port, that you should use juice instead because the Bible says drinking's bad and you're, you know, allowing people to drink and all that sort of stuff. So this isn't new. But excessive alcohol dehumanises. And the fullness of the Spirit makes us more human because the Spirit makes us more like Christ. The second contrast is that in biblical characterisation, drunkenness sits alongside ignorance sleep and death as a life apart from God. So it's a life that's in darkness. So here it serves to describe the inebriated walk of the foolish sons of disobedience and the ignorant Gentiles. And being spirit-filled describes a life that's in relationship with God. So there's a couple of different levels there. I don't want you to go out later on tonight and say that Brett said that drinking's okay, so therefore I can. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. Self-control, moderation. All of you here. (laughs) Joking. Okay. Am I though? No. Subtle. (laughs) been there, done that, it is really not worth it. So Paul uses, well, Paul used use of be filled with the Spirit is actually really important to understand here. Because what does that even mean? Does it mean that I have a ultra 
random experience in church and I start flailing all over the floor, as I've seen people do. Just want to say on that note, and this is completely not in my notes, that if you're in the type of, we don't do that sort of here, so I haven't seen it in this church, but I have seen it. If you are in a situation where someone says that they're under the influence of the Holy Spirit and they start flapping about all over the floor or they bark like a dog or start screaming and howling and stuff, the influence of the Holy Spirit humanizes. It makes us more human. If you're under the, under the influence of the Holy Spirit and you are barking like a dog and you say that, oh, what he said, I've seen it happen, believe me, okay? That is more about them than the Holy Spirit because barking like a dog is dehumanizing. So it's important to understand what it means. Be filled by the Spirit. Firstly, the term be filled is not a tentative proposal, but an authoritative command. According to Paul, this is an unavoidable responsibility of every Christian. It is not optional. Secondly, Paul writes in the plural. He is addressing the whole Christian community. This isn't some elitist special thing, but is available for all the people of God. Thirdly, the command is passive. So in other words, there's no technique or incantation that you have to recite No formula. One translation reads, let the Holy Spirit fill you. So to be filled with the Spirit is to simply surrender to him. And fourthly, Paul writes in the present tense. So meaning that this is not a single action, but a continuous one. It's not like, the miracle in Cana where Jesus turns water into wine, the language there of the servants filling up the jugs jugs, was a singular in that moment. It was to happen once. Whereas here, it is to happen, be filled by the Spirit and go on be filling by the Spirit every day, every minute of every day. The final verses. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God, the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm adding on verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. These final verses, Paul outlines four benefits for being filled by the Spirit or filled with the Spirit. The first one is fellowship. Being filled with the Spirit produces believers speaking and singing to each other in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. This serves as a means of edification, instruction and exhortation. And this is how Christians are distinct 
amongst the rest of society. One way is how we speak to each other and how we treat each other. We don't do that very often. I mean, I, I'm not really sure. I just want to be standing there on my own and like Cassie just comes up and starts singing at me. That would be odd <laughs> in our context. But if she felt the need to do so via the Spirit, that would, should be normal for us. The second thing is worship. Being filled with the Spirit results in worship. Now, this is in the communal context. And it's not our corporate worship that produces the fullness of the Spirit, but it's our corporate worship, which is the outworking of Spirit-filled Christians. And that goes into what Dave, I think, spoke about a couple of weeks ago, last week, week before, that Sunday's not enough. Now, if you've only got Sunday, then that's a good start. But Sunday's not enough. If you're not in this all the time, and don't make a law out of it, don't, be, don't become like me sometimes where I go, well, I haven't read my Bible today, so therefore I am bad and God is mad, because that's not who God is. But if you're not getting into this, if you're not spending time with God, then coming here and trying to whip yourself up into a frenzy because the Holy Spirit might be in the room, you're missing the point. But it's good that you're here nonetheless. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) I'm glad that you are. The third characteristic or beneficial result is gratitude. Verse 20. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the context here is that our thanksgiving is done in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some people read that and go, my life is horrible. I've just had a death in the family. My partner's beaten seven bells out of me or whatever's going on. So therefore, in the midst of that, I need to thank God for that. That's not what this passage is saying. Now, there is trust and abidance in, this, in the midst of, of, of that sort of experience. But the gratitude is to be for everything which is consistent with the loving fatherhood of God and the self-revelation of his son, Jesus Christ. The Trinity directs and informs our devotion. If your life is going through a bad time, it's okay to shake your fists at God. He's big enough to handle it. And the last one is submission. Verse 21. Those who are truly filled 
with the Holy Spirit display the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And submitting to Christ and to each other is one of the most evident characteristics of this. We don't like that one. I don't like that one. I, um, when I, I'm not sure if I've told this story before. Um, I studied at Harvest West. Um, I did a diploma, so I was there for two, or two and a half years, I think, maybe three, because I, I studied part-time. And that's about, what, six semesters? Maybe seven? I don't know. I'm not a bright guy. And part of the deal of being at Harvest West was that they would make you do work around the college to keep the prices down so they don't have to pay for cleaners and gardeners and all that sort of stuff. So once a week we'd all have to go out and do some crap job. I don't know. I mean service. (laughs) And I think for five of those six semesters, because it was rostered on, I had to clean the men's toilets. Like, I kid you not. I'm not... Every single semester, I'd be going, right, what are we doing this semester, blah, blah, blah. Brett, men's toilets. Man. Like, people are like, oh, I'll just clean the kitchen, you know, and stuff. It's just like they're washing three cups and I'm scrubbing the urinal. Man, it's just... However, I remember... I, I actually feel that that's the thing I learned the most from being there. Because I went from, you know going home and kicking the, the cat pretty much. I don't have a cat, it's okay. I'd, like going home and kicking the cat because I'm so angry that I've got the urinal again. And it's like, why me? I'm so angry. You all suck, blah, 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 all of that. To sitting in this real attitude of servanthood and accepting that that's who we are and that you, you do the things that you're called on that Christ calls you to do and you do them in that humility and that gentleness and that meekness and you serve each other in that way. And it might be that the way that you serve is that you serve from the front or it might be that you come in on a Saturday and you're cleaning the dunnies and no one knows that you do it. You know, and there are some times when you go, man, my job sucks. Not this one, I like this one. I've, I've had other jobs that suck. I remember once I was, I was working at St. John and I'd had a, something that was going on in the car and I used to have a boss, he'd call you at 7 o'clock and you'd just like, leave me alone. And got to the car park and I'm like, I hate this job. It just is horrible. And I was walking in to my office because there's a couple of hundred people who work there And there's a bloke walking out with a glove, like an industrial glove up to his shoulder, carrying something that was horrific. And it was like, you know what? There's always context. At least my job, I don't have a glove up to my shoulder because goodness knows where he's been putting that hand. Okay? So we need to understand that we work in submission, but we also work in gratitude of where we're currently at. So how do we conclude? The beginning of chapter 5, 
Paul contrasts between the behaviour of the believing community and that of unbelieving outsiders. The previous section carried out that co- this contrast in terms of sexual immor- immorality um, and the difference between light and darkness. This section, the difference is between wisdom and folly and how wise living is being shown as being living as spirit-filled. Now, like I've said, being spirit-filled doesn't simply involve like a private mystical experience. It, It is that. But it's also corporate worship and it's also relationship. It means that believers, on the one hand, are praising Christ and giving thanks to God, and on the other, they're speaking and submitting to one another in love. And the fullness of the Spirit can only be experienced in the fullness of community. And that's who we are. It's not this me, 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 prosperity uh, gospel bollocks that I was talking about at the start where it's all self-focus. Nor is it the folly and drunkenness of the world. Living wise and spirit-filled is the defining characteristic of the Christian life. It's the defining characteristic of the Christian identity. We don't go and toil for it, but we simply open ourselves up and invite the Holy Spirit to come. 